0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 163. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and today I'm going to talk about sticks and stones, words, and the meaning we give to words. As always, keep in mind you don't need to use what you learned from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. If you're interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No-Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, available on Amazon, or listen to the first five episodes of this podcast, and you can find those first five episodes easily by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking on the Start Here link. If you're looking for a community to practice with and to interact with, consider becoming a patron by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community. In the last podcast episode, I talked about the games we play and the correlation with the Buddhist concept of right view or skillful view, and I want to continue somewhat building on this topic, going into perhaps one of the biggest games that we play, and this is the game of telling stories. And I guess I should go back, perhaps it's not just telling stories, it's first creating stories. I think of the stories that we inherit from our society, stories about this is this, and that is that, and this means this, and that means that. Perhaps the most important story that we will hold to or attach to throughout our lives is the story that we have about ourselves, the story that we carefully craft, uh, the one that we try to ensure that others have of us. These are complex layers of of a story that is very meaningful to us and it affects the way that we see things because we're constantly perceiving ourselves through the lens of the story that we have of ourselves but then comparing that reality to the story that we perceive that others have of us and so many of our actions and uh, go into crafting this narrative to ensure that others perceive us the way we want others to perceive us. And that already is two realities, right? The one that I have of myself, the one that I have that you have of me. And then it can get more muddied and more complicated because I also have the perception of what how you perceive that I perceive myself. That's a That's a third layer. And this process goes on and on. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this in the Buddhist context, uh, presenting kind of the, the the Buddhist thought behind the expression that so many of us uh, Westerners know, at least in the United States, the expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never hurt me. This expression seems to have first appeared in the early 1800s. It's an expression that seems to be intended as a way of building a form of resilience against being called names. Uh, I grew up hearing this, and I think in our society, uh, being called a name is something that's offensive. I mean, think about this, at least in Western culture, uh, there was a time when you could feel insulted because somebody insulted your honor or whatever, almost any reason, and you could challenge them to a duel, literally, challenge them to a, a fight to the death over an insult. Uh I think that that um oh what's the word the um the sensitivity I think that that sensitivity has lingered and can be seen even today in our culture. Think of how offended you get if somebody calls you a name or somebody driving next to you shows you a certain finger you know these are are things that we're quite sensitive to, and I think there's good reason for it. It's an inherited uh, societal norm that's carried throughout the ages. And again, I think a big part of why we feel such sensitivity is because we have a story about who we are and how we are and why we do the things that we are or the things that we do. And then somebody else comes along and presents an alternate reality, their interpretation of why you are the way that you are, who you are, why you're doing what you do. And that clashes with ours, so we get really sensitive about that because our reality um, is so real to us, so true, and theirs can't be, so I've got to defend mine. So I don't know, at least I like to think of it that way. So I want to talk a little bit about a story um, that I think fits well with this uh, notion. There are two stories specifically that stand out to me regarding the notion of name-calling. Roughly 20 years into his teaching, the Buddha had these two incidents take place uh, right around the same time. One I've talked about before in previous podcasts, and the other one I haven't. So I want to start with the, the story that I haven't talked about. This is the story of Sundari. Sundari was a female ascetic who, um, who lived in the time of the Buddha, uh, was belonged to a different ascetic group. So, at this time, you have to remember what was going on is the the Buddha had his group, and his group started growing, and they were out there teaching their uh philosophy or their their understanding of reality, their teachings about suffering and as the group was growing, they were still there were still other groups in the area, ascetic uh practitioners who had uh other ways of practicing um the way of life, if we want to call it that. So some, I don't know if competing ideologies is the right word, but different ideologies. Now, some of these groups were seriously threatened by the presence of the Buddha and his growing group of of monks and followers. And I think the reason is, uh, like you see it today, right? Anytime you have a group that espouses any form of a, a thought, if another thought comes along and it's different than theirs, they feel threatened because Again, I think it's an inherited societal norm that says, if your way is right, my way can't be right. So now I'm offended that your way is being talked about because that says something about my way. And I think that's what was starting to happen with this other group. So the group was jealous of the Buddha's group and didn't like that he had favorability with the king and that he was respected and liked. It was a threat to them. So they come up with this plan, and they recruit the help of this poor uh, female ascetic, Sundari. And unfortunately for her, she doesn't realize she's just being played as the pawn in this whole process, because what they convince her to do is to infiltrate the Buddha's group, get to know him, get to know the group, and just look for any flaws or weaknesses that they might be able to exploit and uh, use as a way of saying, look, this group Turns out to be this way or that way, and now everybody can uh, disavow them. So the plan goes into motion. Sundari infiltrates the uh, Buddha's group and starts practicing with them and getting to know them. And over time, uh, this other group has a, a more sinister plan in mind. They take Sundari on one of these occasions that they're debriefing her from her experiences over there, and they actually kill her. They kill her and bury her somewhere near the um, the monastery or the practice grounds of, of the Buddha's followers. So they do this, and then they go running to the village and to the king, and they're like, where's Sundari? We haven't seen her, but I'm sure all of you have noticed she's been spending a lot of time with the Buddha and with his group. And long story short, they place the blame entirely on the Buddha and, and his group for uh, killing her. Then, of course, they happen to discover her body, and now everybody's uh, up in arms about this scandal and this murder. So uh, the blame is initially placed on on the Buddha. Uh, this other group blames him. And the villagers don't know what to think. The king doesn't know what to think. But something happens right away in this process, which is the the followers of the Buddha are really concerned. Like, oh, what are we going to do? They're accusing us of this. They're accusing you of this. And the Buddha remains really calm. And I think it's it's uh, interesting to me how he handles this. He he asks um, he asks people to uh, remain calm, to endure what they're going through, and then he specifically says um, those who lie and those who deny what they have done both suffer. And then he says, when harsh words are spoken, endure with an unruffled mind. And this to me is interesting. This stands out to me. Because in the midst of being accused of such a a heinous crime, he he has nothing to defend. And I think on one level, he realizes, you know, we always present him as this uh, person of tremendous compassion. Well, here's an example of that. In that moment, he, I think, feels compassion for both parties. Of course, compassion for the person who was played and killed but also compassion for the people doing this because he realizes that ignorance and fear are driving factors behind committing such a a hurtful and unskillful act that with time and with understanding, they will realize and they will also suffer uh, for what they've done, for for, for doing what they did. So in his quote, to uh, endure with an unruffled mind," mind, I want to talk about that a little bit unpack that a little what does it mean to endure uh, suf- suffer something painful or something difficult patiently uh and that's kind of the definition um and the dictionary of enduring is suffering something painful or something difficult with patience and then what is it what what was meant by an unruffled mind um it's not disordered or dis- disarranged it's not agitated or disturbed it's a calm mind So taking what was expressed here, I think skillful view, which is um, right view, kind of what we talked about or what I presented in the last podcast episode, I think is the key here. I like to imagine that the Buddha remained calm in light of these accusations, not because he was pretending to be calm, but perhaps because he was able to zoom out to have a, a much wider picture of what's taking place here and see in that larger picture What was taking place, and and feel a sense of kindness and compassion for the suffering that he and his monks were patiently enduring and calmly experiencing. And he likely, like I said before, also knew that the accusers were suffering or going to be suffering and uh, would eventually be engulfed by that suffering, which is actually exactly what ended up happening. Uh, They ended up confessing to this crime because they realized the buddha remained calm he had nothing to defend he kind of treated it like you know i'm going to continue going about living my life and through my actions hopefully you guys will all come to see that that's something i would never do but he didn't have he didn't have to immediately put up these defenses he didn't have to challenge them to a duel he didn't have to do anything like that because there's nothing to defend i think uh, as a as a practitioner of the teachings that he taught He understood very well this notion of stories, the story that you have of yourself, and one of those stories may be, I am an honorable person who would never do anything wrong, so now if you present me in light of doing something wrong, I have to defend it, I think he realized that's a form of attachment. I don't need to attach to that story. I'm perfectly content knowing that I wouldn't do something like that. And this is where this whole concept takes a a deeper layer uh, in my opinion, a more profound uh, layer of of significance. So uh, going back to this story, right? The Sundari uh, was, justice was had for her. The king eventually takes these others because they confess out of their deep sense of guilt and remorse. And they realize uh, even doing all this, the Buddha never retaliated or said anything bad about any of them. So they end up confessing and they pay the price for their own crimes. And I think that's a story that has stood with uh, with me since I first heard it, because I remember one of my thir- first thoughts is, what kind of person wouldn't defend themselves against an accusation like that? Like, what what kind of mindset would that take? And the more I've come to understand Buddhism, the more I think I've come to understand why that wasn't necessary for him. Now, uh, think about this in a different context. That's a pretty extreme context, right? Accusation of murder. Uh, somebody paid uh, their life over this whole incident. Think of the more common things that happen to us where the same dynamics are in play. And this would be, for example, uh, anytime you're gathered with friends or family and a discussion is being had and you feel the need to uh, interject in the discussion to express something that you know is um, accurate or correct compared to what others are saying in the conversation. This could be applied to so many examples, right? You could be talking about a specific topic and who wrote this song, and you know maybe more of the story than others, and there's this need to correct if somebody says it wrong, like, oh, so-and-so wrote this song because this or that. You know different, so you feel the deep need right there to say, no, actually, and then you give your story. Um, this would be one of those examples of uh, questioning why why am i doing this is it to increase the um effectiveness of what's being taught here to correct something or which which i think would be fine and valid but sometimes there's a deeper thing going on and that might be i need to say this to make sure that they know that i know more than them that if you're being honest that's sometimes what motivates us to say things or do things and the and, and the reason we know this is because on a topic that may not be relevant, where it's completely unskillful to say whatever you need to say, you may feel this deep need to say it and know that if I say this, this doesn't contribute to the discussion. It doesn't help anything, but it does fuel the need that I have to make sure you perceive me the way I want you to perceive me. I think we've all experienced that. I know I've experienced that. Uh, I think we all do to some degree, and that's kind of what I'm hinting at here in the story of the Buddha. He had nothing to defend because he knew the nature of himself and his stories. And he had, at this point in the story, right, he had already achieved enlightenment. And I want to get to that real quick, because what does that mean, this notion of enlightenment? Well, uh, two ways that I've always heard it discussed that I really resonate with me. One is from, um, from uh, Alan Watts. Who has his lecture series that were uh, called "You Are It," and this correlates well with the the interpretation that my teacher had about the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. He would describe it as this was the moment that the Buddha realized he was it. So again, this notion of "you are it," uh, what does that mean? Well, when you so for the the example of the Buddha attaining enlightenment, he It's described sometimes as this moment of realization that when he realized he was it, meaning he was the source of all of it. Uh, He was the source of um, good thoughts and doing things that are uh, benevolent and and skillful, but he was also the source of unskillful acts and perhaps blinded by uh, things like ignorance or fear, but at the end of the day, it's him. there were no external agents that you can blame this on, like the devil made me do it. That doesn't work in this mindset. Uh, it was him coming to the very real, very radical conclusion that the buck stops here, right? It's it's him recognizing it's me. All of this starts and stops with me and taking a complete ownership at that point of anything. So one of the consequences of thinking this way or feeling this way would be, if you're it, then the the ultimate source of contentment when it comes to defending your honor or or your character, it resides in you, meaning if I am content with who I am, it no longer matters how you perceive me. And again, uh in this example of the of the story of Sundari, you see this. They may think he's a murderer and capable of doing these heinous things. But that doesn't ruffle his mind because he knows he's it. Uh, if he is perfectly content and serene in the knowledge that he didn't do it and that he would never do that, and uh, then he can't be shaken. And I think a lot of times for us, we encounter little mini uh, episodes of, the, of stories kind of like this where we don't quite have that sense of peace because we're not it yet, you know? We haven't reached that realization that we're it. We think that we're it because of how others perceive us, for example. And another example of this would be in just being right and wrong. Uh, why, Why are we so deeply affected by others perceiving us as being wrong? It's because in our mind, our story is that I'm someone who's right. I don't want to be perceived as someone who's wrong, so if you are if you think that I'm wrong, I need to tell you this, not because it's the right thing, definitely not because I'm content with knowing that I'm right, it's because I want to feel a sense of contentment that arises when I know that you know that I'm right. Well, that, that's the problem that we wrestle with, with these stories, and the Buddha didn't have that. He didn't have anything to defend because he had a really thorough understanding of his own story. And that's what I wanted to get at here. I think that you can see this evidenced in another story that takes place around the same time, which I have talked about in the podcast. And this is the story of Angulimala, the uh, murderer who was chopping off people's fingers and making necklaces out of the fingers of the victims he killed. So uh, he, he comes into the picture and everybody is... Freaked out rightfully, so, about this crazy guy who's running around killing people, and the Buddha's warned, don't be out there teaching, uh, don't be out there uh begging for for food, uh doing the thing that that you guys do right that that monks do don't do that, it's dangerous right now, and he goes about doing what he normally does because he's not worried about this well then, sure enough, Angulimala uh encounters the Buddha. And uh starts like chasing after him or asking him to stop. the Buddha continues walking, and Angulimala's kind of uh, shocked because the Buddha uh, isn't afraid of him, and the Buddha doesn't stop and finally Angulimala yells out like, "Stop, stop! What are you doing why aren't why you know why aren't you stopping when I tell you to stop and here are the, those famous words by the Buddha where he says, "I stopped long ago, It's you that hasn't stopped." And that sparked, in that moment, some deep interest in Angulimala to, be, to, to think about, what does that mean? What do you mean I haven't stopped? Well, as the story evolves, the Buddha helps him to understand you know, that um, what Angulimala is chasing, he'll never have it. And there's no need to continue down that path. Yeah, he can stop at any, at any point. And Angulimala becomes one of the followers of the Buddha, uh, mends his ways, and becomes a monk. And that's kind of the, the rest of the story for Angulimala. But again here, I think what you see in this story is that the Buddha had no story to defend. And I think that was at the heart of Angulimala's transformation. It was the, he saw in the Buddha something he had never seen before. A person who has no story to defend and therefore, no fear of death. Um, you know, I think I think that there's something really powerful happening in this story and in the story of Sundari. And and what what is it that we can learn from these stories? Well, first of all, it tells me what stories do we have about ourselves that really matter to us? What stories do I have about me, Noah, that really matter to me? And why do they matter so much? Again, in our society, words are very powerful, often much more powerful than the sticks and stones. And that's why I like that expression at the beginning, the sticks and stones can hurt my bones, uh, but words will never hurt me, is both true and it's also evidenced as being not true because we really do suffer a lot um, when others criticize us or when, when people have certain things to say about us. Why is that? I think what this is hinting at, this expression, and also these stories that I'm sharing, is that perhaps it's in us, meaning we're it. I'm the reason why those words hurt me so much because of the meaning that I'm giving to those words. If you call me a liar or uh, whatever you're going to call me, I give meaning to that. Oh, what does it mean if they think I'm a liar? And that meaning that I give to this is what causes me suffering. It's not the words themselves, but the meaning that we attach to those words. And that meaning carries weight because of the value that I have of the story I have about myself, right? And again, as a society, I think we're generally quite fragile when words are being thrown around. And think about it, people get into fights over words. People get into fights over name calling. People are fragile and break down due to the words and the names that they're called. Why why do you think that is? Why is that? And again, not answering this for society, I'm answer- I'm trying to explore this for myself. Why does this matter so much to me if somebody called me a name? And I know I've experienced this myself. Again, words and stories have been so powerful, and I didn't even know how much I was defending my stories and how fragile I was about the words and labels that were being thrown at me until I can look back, and I look back and I can identify that almost any time I've experienced a really strong sense of uh, indignation or or pain or suffering, it almost always has to do with this realization that the story I have about myself is now clashing with the story that you have of me or that somebody has of me. And I experienced this when I left the religion of my upbringing. I had a really hard time with knowing that I was being judged and I was being labeled as a sinner, as a traitor, as a misguided soul. You know, different people interpreted this process that, that took place in different ways. But at the end of the day, I felt I had a story to defend. And that story is that I am a good person and I will do right things. I will do the right thing. But others were looking at me saying as, oh, okay, maybe I'll buy that you're a good person, but you're definitely not doing the right thing. You're doing the wrong thing. And I felt such a need to defend that image that I had of myself. I I recognized this again later on, and I talked about this in the podcast with the story I had of myself as an entrepreneur and the deep suffering and pain I was feeling in the midst of the collapse of my company. And I don't mean to bring all this up as a way of dismissing the pain and the suffering that words and stories can have. I acknowledge that that form of suffering is real, but I also recognize that there is a form of liberation uh, that is possible when it comes to this specific kind of suffering. And again, when we talk about suffering in Buddhism, we're we're careful to separate what we call um, uh, natural suffering and unnecessary suffering. And this to me falls in the category of unnecessary suffering. We see it in the stories that I mentioned of Sundari and Angulimala. I see this in the stories of, uh, in these stories, a powerful example of how liberating it can be to fully understand our own stories, why we defend them, why things like honor matter so much to us as humans and as uh, members of our society. And I believe that the peace and serenity that is Often seen and reflected in these stories, like the story of the Buddha and being accused of the murder of sundari uh, and and other stories in Buddhism, I think they're somewhat tied to this notion that we can actually reach a point where we genuinely feel no need to defend no, we no longer have any agenda to push we It seems like we're most of us always carry some kind of an agenda. Here's my agenda to make sure you see me like this. Or here's my agenda to make sure you see you don't see me like that, right? And we all have something that we're selling, an image that we're selling or an agenda that we're pushing. And perhaps you've noticed, like I have, that some people feel like they really aren't pushing anything anymore. They're no longer trying to sell anything to you or to anyone else. It feels like uh, some people are always trying to push something They're trying to sell you on something, uh, an idea at least. And I think we we almost have this built-in radar for that kind of thing. Maybe this radar of detecting ah oh, this person is is playing the game. They want something from me. Maybe that radar is what saved the Buddha from Angulimala. Maybe Angulimala was genuinely shocked to encounter someone who he perceived as so genuine that they had nothing to sell him on. There was zero preaching. He wasn't telling him what you're doing is evil and you're gonna go to hell. It was there was nothing. He he spoke to him from such a matter-of-fact uh, stance, with zero fear, that I think that shocked Angulimala. It was like, "What? Who is this? What? Are, who thinks that way?" Tell me more. And I think the the Buddha's words have struck uh, have stuck with me from that one single incident when he says, "I stopped long ago. It's you that hasn't stopped." I've often thought about that, and I ask myself that question: Have I stopped? And if not, what am i still after what am i trying to sell what am i trying to preach uh why, and why am i still after it what am i trying to defend and what happens when we stop chasing and when we stop defending i've experienced this again in my own life again with the um with the acceptance that there will be people who will view me as being on the wrong path there's nothing i can do about that the society where i live the norms of the culture that I live in uh make it so that there will always be people who think i'm on the wrong path I'm doing the wrong thing, so again, I think, what does it mean to take the Buddha's wisdom to endure with an unruffled mind to be patient with this and not allow it to ruffle my mind so for this, I go back to this notion of you're it and uh the the notion that the Buddha. Attained enlightenment the moment he discovered that he was it, that he was the source of it, all, of it all. The thoughts and beliefs that shape our reality, they're all in our own mind. And I've been able to experience this myself, this sense of, of peace that arises in recognizing um, this aspect of the realization that you are your own best friend. And if you are good with you, then it doesn't matter if any external opinions are different. And I've come to feel this again in my own life, this uh, sense of serenity and peace that arises from recognizing, I feel like I'm playing the best that I can with the deck of cards that I have, that that have been dealt to me in life and that I currently hold, and therefore I feel a sense of peace. You may think I'm in the wrong for living the way that I'm living, but that doesn't ruffle me anymore because I've got my own back. I actually feel that I'm doing the right thing, the living life the best way that I can. So I'm no longer ruffled by uh, having to defend this story. I recognize, okay, that the story that I am a good guy who does all the right things, that's just a story. I can't, there's nothing to defend in that story because you might think I'm not a good guy and I'm not doing the right things, but that's on you. That's not on me. I feel peace in knowing that, that I am content living life the way that I'm living it. And I guess that's at the heart of what I'm trying to convey in the thoughts of this specific podcast episode. I think all of us have the ability and the potential to recognize that we are it, and that when you become your own best friend, uh, you're going to have that serenity and peace that you see in these stories that the Buddha had, where he had no need to defend anything. He had his own back. Uh, There's nothing to defend. And this this can be uh, our own lives. We can experience, if anything, glimpses of this, perhaps at moments, and perhaps at times when we recognize that this isn't what's taking place, that we are suffering over something, then we can become introspective about it. Okay, why? Why does this matter so much to me? Why do I feel this way? Why am I so ruffled by the fact that you just called me this or that? There's a lot to be learned there, and it's not... um, well, I guess I was going to say it's not so much about what's being said. It is, but it's, it's about recognizing that so much of what other people project onto us has to do with them and their reality and how they perceive reality. It doesn't have to do with, with us. Uh, most of what people do is a reflection of the, uh, on themselves, not on you. So anyway, I hope this episode gives you something to think about, something to reflect on, all with the intent of internalizing and applying this to you, to yourself, to your own life. This isn't a concept that you can make, oh, okay, now I'm going to judge so-and-so. No, I mean, yeah, you'll have more understanding of why people do the things that they do, but that understanding comes from recognizing, oh, this is why I do what I do. So make it about you, internalize this. That's what these concepts and teachings have done for me. It's about the wisdom that we can gain from introspection and perhaps more importantly, the peace and serenity that arise from gaining some form of insight or some form of understanding into the nature of our own minds. So that's the topic I had to uh, share with you today. That's all I have for this episode, but I look forward to sharing more thoughts in another episode in the future. Thank you for listening. Until next time.